The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. And we're continuing our study of the last week of Jesus' life. Now, it's going to take us a long, long time to get through this last week. Uh, My Bible, in my Bible, there are only 15 pages that cover the last week of Jesus' life. But those 15 pages are packed full of information, and it will take us a long time to get through that. And um, it's just... uh, a joy to look at the Word of God and see what God has to say for us. You know, if I, if I had 15 pages of the greatest novel that was ever written, at best, maybe it might take me uh, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half to explain to you those 15 pages. But when we're talking about the Bible, it is so deep. There is so much there that we could just go on for hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months. And we will. We're just going to go, we're just going to keep looking into God's Word, and there'll be a lot of stuff I have to leave out because I can't touch it all. You know, this is a problem that the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon had, that he just lamented the fact that, that he could not get through all that he wanted to get through. Now, Spurgeon was the most prolific of all preachers in the history of the church, the most prolific of all preachers, and yet he could not preach the entire word of God. This is what he said. He said, A long life will only suffice us to skirt the shores of this great continent of light. In the 40 years of my own ministry, I have only touched the hem of the garment of divine truth. A few weeks ago, my younger sister wrote me a letter, and she had a question about a particular Uh, scripture she was going to give a devotion to a ladies group and she said do you have a sermon on this scripture and I wrote back to her and said well no I I haven't actually preached that particular scripture yet and she said well I thought by this time you had a message on every scripture in the Bible and I said no I don't and that's why we're six years into the gospel of Matthew and we still haven't finished it I'm not going to get to the end of the Bible but we're going to try we're going to keep preaching Now, we're into February, of course, of this year, and looking back to the beginning of the year, I'm sure there are many of you that have made New Year's resolutions, most of them probably broken by now, but uh, this is a message uh, that I want to bring today. I wish that I could just back everything up and start at the beginning of the year with this message, and that's because what we're going to talk about today is what you need to do every single day of your life in every year of your life. The greatest thing that you can do is to meet God's greatest expectation. That's what I want to talk to you about today. The most important thing that you can do is to satisfy God, and in that satisfaction comes the greatest blessing for you. Now, I know that everybody's on a quest for happiness. You hear that all the time. People want to be happy. Well, pleasing God and meeting his greatest expectations is the way to your happiness. That's the joy of life, and that can't be matched by any other type of revolution that you'd, uh, resolution that you'd ever want to make. You want to please God. We're going to talk to you today about what it is that pleases God. Now, let's read the text for today's message, and 
then we'll discuss this most important passage of Scripture. Stand with me once again for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse number 34. Matthew 22, 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. Help us as we look into this text. We do want to know what you want us to do. We want to live by what you want us to do. We want to satisfy you. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that I always like to do in my preaching is to set the context for the text that we're reading. I think it's very important for us to understand why a particular scripture is put in the Bible and why it appears at a particular place. The context is extremely important for us. And what we don't do here at Berean, we just don't pick up the Bible and pick out a verse of scripture here and there and, and just take off without telling you what it's all about and why we're here at this particular place. Now, the best thing that I can do to help you to understand why this passage that we're going to talk about today is here is what we read over in the 21st chapter in verses 43 and 44. There it says, Jesus is speaking, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now he's speaking to the Jews, of course. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now that stone that it's talking about in verse number 44 is Christ. Now a few weeks ago, I preached a message from this text, and there was someone who came to me afterwards and asked me a question about it. Uh, the first part of the verse, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. And I was asked if that meant that there has to be brokenness before Christ can use us, that we come to him and we fall on him, and we, Christ has to break us from our thoughts about self, our self-righteousness and all of our pretenses, and Christ has to break our stubborn hearts before he can use us. And then when that happens, the second part of the verse won't happen to us, and that is the stone will not fall on us and grind us to powder. Now, I love people that listen to the messages. I love people that are studious and ask questions and they're thinking about things as I preach them. I love that kind of person, and I hope that all of you are. And this is a very nice sentiment that this person brought up. It makes a very good preaching point. It's true that we do have to be broken before Christ can use us. We do have to give up all of our self-righteousness before he can use us. We have to be broken by him. That's absolutely true. But that's not the meaning of the text. This is why we talk about things like this. That is not the meaning of the text. What it actually means is that a person who tries to ensnare Christ, who tries to trip him up, who tries to set a trap for him, who tries to prove that he is wrong... That person will be broken. 
Now, I know you can't see that in the English text that we have before us, but in the original language, this is actually what it means. And the reason that Christ said this is because what follows in chapter 22, and that is there were three times that people came to him and they tried to ensnare him, they tried, they tried to trip him up and prove that he was wrong and try to get rid of him. And so in chapter 22, we find these three attempts to discredit Jesus. Now, we've already talked about two of those attempts. The first of them was a setup by the Pharisees when they enlisted another group, a political party that was called the Herodians, and they tried to get Jesus to make an inflammatory statement about the Roman government. And if he would do that, then they could get rid of him. And so they asked him a question about taxes. Should we pay the Roman taxes? And then in verse number 23, there's another group that approached him, and these were the Sadducees. They were another religious group, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they came to challenge Jesus on the resurrection, and they tried to prove how foolish that it is to believe that people will be raised from the grave. Now, we've talked about those two things. I don't have time to go back into them again, but those are questions that were asked to try to trip Jesus up. And both of those things were rather silly types of things, not very serious questions. But we come to the third one that we have in this text today, and this is a more legitimate type of question, one that needs to be thought about very clearly. And it wasn't a question asked in sincerity, but nonetheless it does provide us some very good teaching material because here it hits the nail on the head about what God expects from us. Now, you'll, you'll notice here in verse number 34 that the Scripture says, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And so here we have this group, the Pharisees, once again, and they come in the last attempt that we're going to see. This is the last week of Jesus' life, and this is their last attempt to, attempt to try to trip him up and to discredit him. Now, they had seen how the Herodians had failed, and they saw how the Sadducees had failed, and so they gathered together again to put one more scheme into place by which they could hopefully get rid of Jesus. Now, you'll notice in the verse that it says that he put the Sadducees to silence. That literally means that he shut their mouths. And that's what the Word of God always does. When it is taught in truth, when it's spoken in truth, it silences the critics because they can never, they can never defeat the wisdom of the Almighty God. And so, upon those defeats, the Pharisees are gathered together. And remember that these instances of people gathering together, the rulers of the people trying to come together against Christ is a fulfillment of the scripture that we see in Psalm chapter 2. There it says that the rulers, the kings of the earth will be gathered together against the Lord, against the Lord's anointed. And the apostles in Acts chapter 4 and verses 25 through 28 tell us that these kinds of gatherings were the fulfillment of that scripture in Psalm 2. So this is a concerted effort. This is the effort to get rid of Jesus. And so they ask him questions. Now, now as our first observation today, I want us to look at the purpose of this question. Now, we're following the same convention that we had in the previous two questions. What is the reason that they ask these things? 
Well, the purpose, of course, is the same as the other times. It was to discredit him. But there are so many questions that can be asked. I mean, on Sunday mornings, we have our Sunday morning forum class, and I get asked a lot of questions. So out of all the questions that can be asked, why did they come to Jesus with this particular one? Now, you'll notice there in verse 22, it says, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? So there was a lawyer that came to him. And I'll forgo all the lawyer jokes today because there's plenty of those that I could use. And we'll come back to the lawyer in just a minute. But this lawyer came and he asked, What is the great commandment in the law? Now, why would he ask Jesus that? Well, one of the false charges that was consistently made against Jesus and made against the apostles later and also made against other Christians is that they opposed the Mosaic law. Now, this was an attempt to get Jesus to go beyond the laws of Moses, to act as if he was superior to Moses, that he superseded to Moses. And they hoped that that he would give some kind of a new law, something they hadn't heard before, something that was strange to their hearing in addition to opposing to or superior to the Mosaic law. Now you see, of all the prophets that God gave to Israel, Moses was superior to all of them. Moses was a very special and peculiar prophet because he is the only one that stood with God and talked to him face to face. Listen to these scriptures, Exodus 33:11. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In Numbers chapter 12, and he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and I will speak to him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him I will speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Therefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Moses was special enough that God said to his disobedient people, Why are you not afraid to challenge the authority of Moses? And they did. They challenged him. God said, why do you do that when this is the prophet that I speak to face to face? And so we never find another prophet in the Bible that interacted with God in the same way that Moses did. And so the people thought Moses is the greatest of all prophets. Moses is greater than the angels. Moses is the man who has the ear of God. Moses is the man who's in the presence of God. And so that made every word that Moses spoke and every word that Moses wrote the purest form of the word of God. That's what they believed about Moses. Now here we've actually found one area of agreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They opposed each other on just about everything, but on this. They both agreed that when Moses spoke, this is God speaking. God, Moses has the authority of God. And so they hoped when they asked this question that Jesus would would bring something else up, something opposing to Moses, and they'd have a reason, an indictment to shut him down. If he acts superior to Moses, if he puts down Moses, he says, I'm greater than Moses, then they have all the ammunition that they need. 
Now again, this is what Jesus and the apostles and other Christians were accused of when Stephen was stoned. This was actually the charge that was brought against him. In Acts chapter 6, it says, Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, and listen, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. That's what they thought. Jesus, the apostles, Christians oppose the Mosaic law. But neither Jesus nor the apostles or Christians were against the Mosaic law. In fact, what did Jesus say about it? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Now, do you know why that Jesus upheld the law? Because it wasn't Moses' law. It was his law. He is the almighty God who gave Moses the law. And so Jesus was not going to go against the law because to do that was to go against himself. So Jesus always supported the Mosaic law. Well, they sent this lawyer to ask him a question. In the original Greek, the word that's used for lawyer there is nomikos, and it means a law expert. In other words, this is not your ordinary scribe who were the lawyers, not the ordinary one, but he was the best of all that they could put together. He was the Johnny Cochran and the F. Lee Bailey and the David Boys all rolled up into one, except he was better than in another way, and that is that he was a superior student of theology. And so this is the very best that the Pharisees could put up against Jesus. So the lawyer asked him a good question, although we do understand that the motive for it was wrong. The Bible says that he asked him a question tempting him. And that reveals the motive. Now, that's a word that we've seen in Matthew before. The intentions here are not good. This is tempting. That means it's a test. It's a snare, just like we find over there in chapter 21 and verse number 44. And if you were to turn back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 1, there you would find the character of this man. There the scripture says, Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so this man shows the character of Satan himself that he wants to tempt Jesus to trap him just like the devil did. Now you remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees in John 8:44. He said, "You are of your father the devil." And you can throw out the universal fatherhood of God right there because Jesus said some people have the devil as their father. And you know who they are? The ones who reject Christ. The Christ rejectors, the ones who turn their back on him, the deniers of the Holy One. So here's the purpose. It's a, it's a good question and one that we can learn from, but it's a question that's asked tempting him. It's insincere. Uh, this man might have been a little bit more honest than the others were, but he wasn't a believer. It's an attempt to set a trap. Now, we're going to leave that for just a minute. 
We have the setting and we have the purpose for the question, but we really need to understand why is this such an important question? This is a question about the law, and the Pharisees are always concerned about the law. In fact, what the Pharisees had done, they didn't just have 10 commandments to live by, they had 613 commandments that they were to live by. And what they were always trying to do was to figure out which one of those commandments was the biggest one. Which one is the one that we absolutely do have to keep? Let's set a ranking. Let's, let's grade this thing out and let's figure out which is the greatest commandment that we are to keep. Now, this is what they thought, that when God judges us, he's going to look at the things that we've done. He's going to add up all the good things that we've done. And we want to make sure that we have the, the best abilities, the best things, the best laws. We've kept all of them. So when God adds that up, he's going to grant us access into his kingdom. So they wanted to grade the law. Let's find the best one. And you know, that's the way that people are today when they want to be saved by what they do. They're always asking these kinds of questions. What is the big thing that I need to do? Let's forget about all the little things that I do wrong. Let me find the big thing that I can do that God will accept me and God will save me because of what I've done. Now, Jesus' answer to the question is important because he said, you can't do that. What he said is you have to keep all of God's law. And he included all of God's law. And that's important. He didn't leave anything out. He said in chapter 5, you must be perfectly obedient to all of it. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so if you break just one commandment, no matter how insignificant that you think it is, one commandment is enough to send you to hell. James wrote... For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, when you stand before God and he judges you, he's going to look for perfect obedience. And that is the essential fundamental reason that you need Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. You know, there are many condemning statements that are made in the Bible. Many condemning statements. Here, here's one that the Bible says, it says that all men are liars. And of course, that means all women too. All men and women are liars. And you know what the Bible says about that? All liars will have their part in the lake of fire. That's in Revelation 21, verse number 8. So I hope that you're not counting on perfect obedience to get you to heaven because if that's the way you're going to get there, you're not going to get there. You can't get there. Well, let's go on. What is so special about this answer? Well, secondly, let's look at the personal nature of the command. Now, let me show you the personal nature by filtering out the King James language. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is a commandment for you. It's a commandment a demand that God makes of all people. Now, nobody escapes this requirement. That's a personal call to all of us. And the personal focus of it is revealed in the King James language with the thou and the thys, or as we say it today, the you and the yours. Now, no doubt there are some people who say, God? This God? Well, he's not my God. I don't have to love him. I don't have to obey him. Why should I obey his commands? I don't even acknowledge that he's God. 
And people may think, well, that's a fair offense, uh, defense rather. How, how, how could you love a God that you don't even acknowledge? And why should you be required to love a God that you don't acknowledge? Well, if you don't love him and you try to avoid him and you don't obey his commands, then you're going to suffer the consequences of that disobedience. This is a universal command for all people. And the universality of it is seen by what the Apostle Paul experienced when he preached to the Athenians on Mars Hill. Now, you remember the story how that Paul went to Athens and there he was just amazed at all the idols that he saw when he got there. There were idols everywhere. They had an idol to everything that moved, it seemed like. They had, a, they had a god for everything. And just in case they had left out some god, they had made an idol or made a, a statue or altar to the unknown god. And Paul used that as an opportunity to tell them, this is what this God that you don't know requires. This is the true God. And this true God says that all men everywhere must repent. And you know what that means? It means that every person everywhere must change directions and start following and obeying the true God. That's not a take it or leave it choice. That's not something you decide, I want to or I don't want to. God says, you do it. Now, you'll hear many people say that God wants you to love him just because you want to. And they say that God's never going to force love. And I beg, or beg to differ from that. God commands you to love him whether you want to or not. Loving is not optional depending about, uh, on how you feel about it. Because you don't want to does not change the command that God says you must love him. This is a personal command for all people. Now for sure, God wants you to love him. There's no doubt about that. And look at the way that Jesus makes it clear. He says you must love God with all your heart. And in those days, the heart was just another way of saying the real you. The heart is your identity. The heart is the source of all of your thoughts. And that's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You have to put all of you into loving God. And then he says your soul. You must love God with all of your soul. That's the emotional you. Put all of your emotions into loving God. And then he says to love him with all of your mind. And this is the place where we come to the human will. The mind represents your desires and your intentions. This is the conscious choice that you have to love God. And God wants you to make that choice. But interestingly, God is the only one who can enable you to make that choice. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in regeneration. And folks, that's why you need Jesus. It's because everyone in the world is guilty of not loving God in the way that he wants to be loved. And you need Jesus to pay for your sin of not loving God in the way that God says that you are to love him. Now, these are people that pretended to love God, but they proved that they didn't love God because they rejected Jesus Christ. And I don't care who you are. If you reject Jesus Christ, you do not love God. This is absolutely necessary. So it's a personal command that involves all people. And then next is the pervasive appearance of the command. Now, it turns out that this lawyer was very satisfied with Jesus' answer. You can see that better in Mark chapter 12, which is a parallel passage. And he commended Jesus for the answer that he gave. And do you know why? Because what Jesus said 
was part of what the Jews recited every single day of their life. That's the Shema that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 6 if you would. And this is a very, very important text for the Jewish people. Deuteronomy means second law. It's the repetition of laws that Moses had given to the people. And Deuteronomy contains the last commands that Moses gave before Israel went into the promised land. And the last thing that he wanted to do was to remind the people of God's law. So he went through it all again. Now, the last words of a dying man are often very important. And if that man is Moses who spoke face to face with God, then I can assure you what he said was very important. And so Moses said, if you want to be blessed in Canaan, this is what you must do. In chapter 5, there's a repetition of the Ten Commandments. And then we come to chapter 6 and verse number 4, and it starts out, Hear, O Israel. And the word hear is the Hebrew word shalma or shema. And this we call, this section of scripture we call the shema. He says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes." That is the Shema. Now, if you go to Israel today to the Western Wall, Eric, if you put the pictures up here for me, if you go to the Western Wall today in Israel, you'll see Jewish men standing there before the wall, and they wrapped their arms with these leather straps, and those are phylacteries, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in another message. But you'll see the Jews doing this. But you also see something else in this next picture, and this is a box that's on top of this man's head. And in that box, they put these scriptures of Deuteronomy chapter 6. They put the Shema in there because the Word of God said that they should keep them as frontlets between their eyes. And they take it very literally. And so they make this box. And then if you go to a Jewish house, you'll find a little box that's on the side of the door that's called a mezuzah. And in that mezuzah, you find the Shema. These words that these Jews recited twice every day. So the lawyer said, that's a very good answer. Mark 12 says, he said, that's a really good answer. And this is because this is the command that's put up there right at the top of everything that the Jews were to do. And so Jesus didn't say anything different from what they had learned. It is a pervasive command. This thing is found many times throughout the scripture. Let me show you some other places in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Deuteronomy 11 verse 1, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. And you'll find that throughout many Old Testament texts, even going down to the very last words that were recorded in the Old Testament written in the time of Nehemiah. They're still talking about loving God and keeping his commandments. And then you move on into the New Testament, and this doesn't change. 
Jesus said in John 14, If ye love me, keep my commandments. In John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved to my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. In John 15, 10, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In 1 John chapter 5, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Second John 1 and verse number 6, And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. Now does that sound like Jesus or the apostles were against the laws of Moses? Moses said, love God. And he said, keep his commandments. And Jesus and the apostles said, love God and keep his commandments. Now let me rock your world just a little bit. Do you see something here that's always tied to loving God? It's always the keeping of commandments. Now this is pretty simple stuff. It's pretty clear. If you do not keep God's commandments, then you don't really love God. And here we've come down and we've found the center of the lordship salvation controversy. Those that are opposed to lordship salvation will try to separate out the commandments of God from the salvation of God. And they actually say that Jesus can be your savior, but he does not have to be your Lord. That can come later. They even go so far as to say that you can be saved and not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's not true. The Word of God refutes that. I've read you many scriptures that put commandments along with our salvation. Now, I'm going to explain that to you in just a minute. What is the essence of Christianity? What is a true believer? A true believer is one who loves God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John said, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So one who knows God, that is a true believer, and a true believer keeps the commandments. What you can't do is you can't separate the lordship of Christ from the salvation of Christ. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, and you don't, keep, or you don't do what I say? Now, I'm sure you're all wondering right now, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like that can be right. Are we saved by keeping commandments? And the answer to the question is no. We're not saved by keeping commandments. But one who is saved has already agreed to bow to the mastery of Jesus Christ. The one who is saved says, Jesus is my Lord. And what is God's greatest expectation? It says that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And what's the proof that you love God that way? You keep his commandments. Now you see, God wants more than your belief. You know, the Bible says that the devils believe and tremble. You know what that means? The devils even have faith. But you know what they lack? They don't love God. They don't serve God. They don't keep the commandments because they don't love him. A Christian is one who believes and he loves and he shows it by staying out of sin. 
Now that's just what we call fundamental teaching on salvation. If you are a person who claims Christ and you constantly find yourself on the wrong side of God's commandments, then you're not a child of God. Lordship and salvation cannot be separated. So here's a command that appears over and over throughout the scriptures. It's nothing different than the law of Moses. Jesus said what Moses said, and Jesus always upheld the law. Now going on, let's look at the primary direction of the command. Notice where this love is directed. You shall love the Lord your God. Well, who is the only God that we're to love? Well, it's the God of the Bible. It's the God that's been revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's certainly not one of the Canaanite gods or any other god. And the command of the scripture is clear. The very first command that God gives is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so we're not talking about just any God. We're talking about the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. And what God will never allow, what he will never accept, is any division of that loyalty. He is the God of Scripture. And this is where so many people go wrong. Even in the evangelical world, people go wrong with this. You have leading evangelicals like Billy Graham and Robert Schuller who said that you do not need to know this God. You don't even need to know about Jesus Christ. But if you will sincerely worship Allah or you will sincerely worship Buddha or any number of Hindu gods, if your worship is sincere and you believe in them, that's okay. God will save you anyway. That's not what the Bible says. It's not okay, and God is not okay with that. And you know something else that's not okay? It's not okay for you to invent a new Jesus. And that's probably the biggest problem that we have in America today. People have a new Jesus. The Jesus that they have found and the one that they believe in is the non-condemning, tolerant Jesus. The one who loves homosexuality and all sorts of perversion and all kinds of sin. And this is a Jesus who will never judge anybody. When we were traveling last month, I saw a, a man with a sweatshirt on in Moab, Utah. And on his sweatshirt, it said, no one can judge me but God. And I knew what that meant. It meant, I'm not going to accept your moralizing because no one can judge me but God. And the real meaning of it is, even God's not going to judge me. I'll do whatever I want because my God's not going to judge me. And you hear it so often. Oh, Christians are not supposed to judge. And they misapply Matthew 7, verse number 1, which I don't have time to deal with today. But they misapply that and say Christians can never judge. But isn't this what the Bible does for us? It gives us the criteria by which we judge. It gives us the Ten Commandments and says this is the way that you are to live. And the Bible gives us and Jesus tells us all things that have to do with judgment. And then in the, the Apostle Paul in his writings, every encouragement that he gives us to live a Christian life the way we're supposed to is a judgment on somebody's lifestyle. And so you can't invent your own God who's different from the Bible. Now what Jesus said and did is recorded in only one place and that's in the Bible. And Jesus talked more about sin and more about hell than he did about heaven. And so a different God, a false God, is no better than a Canaanite God. Today the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses have a different Jesus. 
Their Jesus is no better than a Canaanite God because this, theirs is not the Jesus of the Bible. So here's the thing that you have to make sure of. When the Bible says that you are to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind, you have to make sure that the God you love is the right God. Don't focus your love on the wrong God, the one who's not presented in the pages of Scripture, because that'll never help you. It'll never save you. You must believe in the God who of the Bible. You can't love the wrong God and obey Jesus Christ. And then, fifthly, is the pivotal placement of the command. Now, coupled with this command is a quotation from Leviticus 19.18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Here's the problem with many do-gooders. They love God so much that they forget about people. They are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. You know the saying. They love God so much that they forgot all about people. Now, the lawyer did not ask Jesus for a second command. They didn't say, give me the second command too, but Jesus volunteered the information anyway, and that's because the second command cannot be divorced from the first command. They go together. John said, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So the lawyer here is trying to rank commandments And what Jesus did was to refuse to separate out the commandments into ranks. You can't separate these commandments. Now, you know, you've read it. What did Jesus say? All of the law hangs on the first commandment. That's not what he said. He said on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, why does he say that? Well, most of you are familiar, if you've been in Berean for a while, how the Ten Commandments are divided. There are Ten Commandments, of course, and the first four are about loving God. God says, you shouldn't have any other gods before me. And he says, don't make a graven image. And he says, uh, don't take my name in vain, and so on. And those first four commandments are talking about loving God. And I think that you get that. I think you understand that's what it means to love God. But do you understand how the last six are about loving your fellow man? It's really a pretty simple equation. And that is, if you love your brother, you're not going to kill him. And if you love him, you're not going to defile him with a sexual sin. You're not going to have an affair with his wife or women. You're not going to have an affair with somebody's husband. You know, you hear this so many times that, that people say, Oh, I just love him so much. I'm just so deserving this. I love, I deserve to have this love. No, you don't love him. You love you. You do those things because you love you. And that's why people leave their little kids in the lurch of a broken marriage and a broken home is because they love themselves more than they love their kids. If you love your brother, you're not going to steal from him. If you love your brother, you're not going to lie about him. If you love him, you will respect him in all ways. But this is such an easy command, and yet there are people that misinterpret what it says. They take it the wrong way. They read it, and it says, I am to love my neighbor as myself. And that becomes the focus, the as myself. And so now they say, oh, it's okay to love me. 
And this is what you hear all the time in the world's philosophy. It's okay to love me. It's all about me. It's all about my importance. It's all about what I want, what I need to do. I deserve happiness. I deserve this and I deserve that. I got to do everything it is and everything there is to fulfill what I want. And that's not what the Bible says. It's not okay to be selfish. Selfishness leads us into all kinds of sins. So how do I love my neighbor as myself? How is that possible? Well, ask yourself a few questions. Who did I feed this morning? Who did I, who, 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 who did I clothe today? Whose teeth did I brush today? Who did I give a ride to work today? Who? Well, that was you, wasn't it? That was you. Well, now go try doing that for somebody else. That's how you love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do, you'll find out that loving him as you is not as easy as it sounds. And yet that's what God says that we are to do. This is a pivotal command. This is a nail that's fastened in a sure place on which hangs all of our duty to God. God's greatest expectation is that you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me close with one last observation. S. Lewis Johnson said something that was very important. You know, there are people that say that they love God, but what they want to do is throw out God's commandments. And so Johnson, S. Lewis Johnson said, it is only gross ignorance of the requirements of God's love that make people undervalue the gospel. The man who has the clearest view of the moral law will always be the man who has the highest sense of the value of Christ's atoning blood. When you value God's commandments, then you will value Christ's blood because then you'll see that his blood is the only thing that can cleanse you from sin. You'll realize that, that you can't do this by yourself, that you can't keep these commandments, that you can't be perfect as Jesus said that you need to be perfect. There is no strength in you ever to do that. You'll never meet God's standard. You can't live that high. And there's only one person who ever did, only one person who ever met God's greatest expectation, and that was Jesus Christ. He never sinned. Peter said, in him there is no guile. And so he was able to keep all of God's laws perfectly. He loved God to the fullest extent. And he's the only one that ever did that, which means he's the only one who can be your savior. God requires perfect obedience, and your obedience is imperfect. And there's only one way that you can be perfect in God's sight, and that is to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you. Now, do you know how you get it? Faith. Faith in his blood. That's the way that you get the righteousness of Christ. Now, here's the thing that happens. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are then in Christ. You are in him. He's the one who was tested. He was the one who was tried. He's the one who came through every time. He always kept God's law perfectly. And when you trust him as Savior, you are in him so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that you're ever going to be perfect. To see God and to speak to him face to face as Moses spoke to God face to face, you must trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must receive his righteousness. And I'm here to tell you today that Jesus Christ will give that to you.
I don't care who you are. I don't care which of the commandments that you haven't kept. That can all be in the past. You trust Jesus Christ and he covers all of that under his blood. And that's what makes the cross of Christ such a wonderful thing. That's why you value it so much because you understand that you cannot keep the moral law. Christ had to do it for you. You can be saved today. You just trust him and you'll receive this righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message that we've been able to bring today. Great text. Lord, we just ask that you would open up someone's heart to the truth today. The greatest expectation can be met in only one way, and that is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we have done that, we've met your greatest expectations. Lord, speak to some heart today. Show them the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ. We cannot trust ourselves. There's nothing we can do. There's no goodness that we can offer. All we can do is come, as the songwriter said, in my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Lord, speak to some heart today to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.